0: Welcome to Noisy Fulfillment, a Desperate Housewives Rewatch podcast where we take you back in time episode by episode of ABC's Desperate Housewives. If you love what we're doing and would like to support us further than just as a listener, which we absolutely thank you for, you can really help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star review and subscribing to this podcast. That really helps people to find us because analytics equals search results. We'll also read it on the air, so if you love to hear stuff you've written on the air, here's your chance. Also, you can become a patron by contributing at any monetary level by going to anchor.fm slash noisyfulfillment. You can also buy us a virtual coffee by tipping us in our virtual tip jar at ko-fi.com slash noisyfulfillment. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash noisyfulfillment where you can comment on stuff, react to stuff, and also message us. You can also email us at noisyfulfillment at gmail.com hello and welcome to noisy fulfillment a desperate housewives rewatch podcast where we take you back in time episode by episode of abc's desperate housewives Uh, we have a very special bonus episode for you today Uh, and it's special for so many reasons but a chief among them is that we have a very special guest joining us today dr melissa ames is the director of english education and a professor of english and women's gender and sexuality studies at eastern illinois university She specializes in media studies, television scholarship, internet studies, popular culture, and pedagogy. Her most recent publications include her books, Hashtag Activism, Interrogated and Embodied Case Studies on Social Justice Movements, Small Screen Big Feels, Television and Cultural Anxiety in the 21st Century, How Pop Culture Shapes the Stages of a Woman's Life, Time and Television Narrative, Women and Language, Chapters in Grace Under Pressure, Grey's Anatomy Uncovered, Writing the Digital Generation, Bitten by Twilight, Manufacturing Phobias, Adventures in Shondaland, Young Adult Literature in the Composition Classroom, and the Computers and Writing Proceedings, and Articles in the Journal of Dracula Studies, the Women in Popular Culture Encyclopedia, the High School Journal, the Journal of Popular Culture, Feminist Media Studies, Pedagogy, and First Monday, Dr. Ames, that is one heck of an impressive load of literature. And thank you for being here. Welcome to Noisy Fulfillment. Thank you for having me. So we always like to start with your Desperate Housewives origin story. So could you please tell us a little bit about your Desperate Housewives origin story? When did you watch it? How did you watch it? Have you revisited since then? Tell us about that. Sure. Um, So I actually watched it
1: live. I was writing a dissertation on feminist media studies. I was a soap opera scholar. And I started to get interested in what might be considered primetime soaps or kind of sudsy dramas. And that led me to eventually be a late joiner to Sex and the City. And they always say that Desperate Housewives is the natural kind of ancestor or follow-up text that is to um, Sex and the City. And so I jumped on Desperate Housewives when it was first um, advertised and I saw the red apple across ABC's screen and wanted to check it out and I watched it then. I have not watched it since, I thought about it from time to time in my scholarship, but it has been really interesting to jump back in and look at it now, because when I watched it in 2004, I wasn't married, I didn't have kids yet, and things like routine marital sex, divorce, parenting stress, and PTA were not yet in my life, so I am definitely relating to things on a different level now.
0: We're both finding that my co-host, Amanda Baum, and I have both talked about how we've been different housewives at different times in our lives, and that, especially in post-2016, we wanted to revisit that text for, for a lot of reasons, in, in, in addition to what you're saying about having different biographies at the different times of our lives. So that's fantastic. Um, so you said you haven't revisited it, but you rewatched this episode. I sure did. Yes. You know, as a
1: busy mom, really, really late at night, but I I just found myself writing all these things and then looking back at them and I just, yeah, it, it brought back a lot of fun memories.
0: I can't wait to dig into this with you. And something that I haven't shared on this podcast is that you are, in many ways, the reason that this podcast even exists. For it, it just uh, you know, six degrees of separation. There's a lot going on there. Number one, you were my director at Eastern Illinois University, and you really opened my eyes to the ways in which my personal and professional uh, ideas can can merge and can be a career. And at 21, um, that really hadn't occurred to me that you can have, you don't have to, you can have a separation of those things, but you can also bring those into conversation with one another. And so that I feel like inspired me later on in my life to, to take different niche opportunities in education, um, and popular culture and, um, being a, that being a small screen scholar is actually a job, that this is something that you can market and make, make, uh, into a profitable and, uh, I'm going to take that again. Um, one of the things that you taught me is that being a screen, a small screen scholar is a job. There is a way to actually monetize this and that you can like what you do, even if it's outside of education. So that's, that's another reason that this podcast exists because of you. And then is something that uh, listeners don't know yet. We weren't sure when we wanted to tell them. This podcast came out of a dream that I had. I had, I literally had a dream, almost a nightmare. Um that Dr. Ames and I were hosting a Desperate Housewives rewatch podcast and I showed up to the podcast and I had nothing to say. I couldn't remember the episode and she was so kind but disappointed in me because that's not how she taught me to uh, to, to behave in my professional my professional or my personal commitments. Um you always very much modeled what it meant to be prepared and for things to go wrong and just in a in a very small of the many things that you've you've shown me later on in my career i think i was a third year teacher and i hosted a program uh called career lunches in uh, in in the lunch hour of of our school day and other teachers would work would work on it with me. I was definitely the youngest. I was definitely the least tenured of all of us and it was so interesting to me. A teacher that I really respect uh something went terribly wrong and she emailed me while it was going terribly wrong and asked me what to do and I thought to myself I'm like wow that is that you know how how incredibly heavy does that weigh on me? Uh, but I, I just, I remembered all of the things that you had taught me about. Your technology will fail. You, your, your students will come to class without having done the reading. These things will happen and you have to be ready with a contingency plan. Um, it won't be enough to say, well, I didn't think about that. Uh, so just, just another way that that you have inspired me and and that this podcast exists because of you. So I'm delighted that even though you're not co-hosting it with me, that you've uh, that you've taken on the, the opportunity to come on and talk with us about Desperate Housewives because I enjoy our discussions immensely and now everyone gets to enjoy them. Oh, thank
1: you so much for that high praise. I've just loved watching what you've done over the years and I am so excited for the opportunities that you're taking on that I've never even delved into. So I know I told you that I have never been on a podcast before. So I feel like you're giving me this chance to dip my toes into a different area of po- uh, popular culture that I haven't had the courage to jump into. So I'm glad you're taking me along for the ride. And I've had the dream that I wasn't
0: going to be prepared for <laughs> this week. So it comes full circle. So I'm excited to dig into this with you. Um, one of the one of the questions that I had for you is that the frame of this episode is really about combat and fighting and battle, and whether it's explicit or implicit, while it has a lot for men, I think it is a product that was marketed for women. And roughly 80% of the episodes were written, were directed by men, 70% of the episodes were written by men. And I think that we might get into a chicken versus an egg debate here, but how do we approach a text that is marketed for women, 2004, removed from our own time, and is so male-dominated?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, these are all the things we're paying a lot of attention to right now with hashtags White, right? I mean, mm. so we're paying attention to who gets representation behind the scenes of our media and what is the impact. And I definitely, you can't, you can't watch Just for Housewives, um, probably even back then, but certainly now, looking back then, and miss all of these female stereotypes that are in the episode. And they definitely show us these types of wives and moms and other classic tropes like the warring mother-in-law and wife, right? I mean, yes. so cyclical and we're so used to them that we don't even blink. So part of it, I think, is a product of the times, right? We've just slowly gotten away from breaking um, down some of these stereotypes, I think, over the last two decades and creating more unique um, portrayals or more accurate, more nuanced portrayals of women and men and different age groups and whatnot. So I think that's part of what is jarring when we look back at it. But I don't think you're completely wrong that there is something to say about who's behind the camera, right? Who's, you know, behind the script. So I was thinking a lot about Shonda Rhimes and her shows such as Scandal or Grey's Anatomy or How to Get Away with Murder. And in those shows, you see way more complicated female characters than I think we get on the surface at first, at least in desperate housewives. And I think that over time, this has been able to be due as we go through round after round of new television and new people break some ground and we build off of those. Um, I'm thinking about even soap operas. Like I started studying those and they seem really kind of retro (laughs) maybe to us now. But they were the first shows to explore women's issues like abortion and domestic Hmm. violence and rape. Um, They were the first ones to flip the script and let women do the looking, right? Drop that male gaze. And women are looking at the half-dressed men on the screen. And so we see that stuff slip into a Desperate Housewives. And we see then things from shows today that are possible because Desperate Housewives was there before, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And we talk about the, that, that as um, etymology and that it, gr- it grows out of this, or you talked about ancestry, that mm-hmm. other shows don't exist without Desperate Housewives. Desperate Housewives doesn't exist without Golden Girls. Golden Girls doesn't exist without, and, and we can see that genealogy. And I thought that was a, a very appropriate metaphor. I loved that. Um, I'd like to discuss what Darcy Allen's novel, A Simple Favor, calls Captain MaMark type because I think we see that here in Mm -hmm. in the form of Maisie Gibbons. So she's the head of the PTA and these women want to please her but are simultaneously terrified of her. She is kind of a nightmare at -hmm. the same time. I don't think it's, I want to make it, well, I don't want to make it more complicated than that. It, it has to be more complicated than that because it just is. Um, I don't like the way she's vilified because at the same time, I think she is a mom trying to do what she feels is best for her children, for her children's school. Um, she, I doubt she got up this morning and decided, I really want to go terrify all of these women and make all of their lives harder. That that doesn't seem to be a lot of people's motivation for getting out of bed. Right. So I know what it is to take on more than I want to for a multitude of reasons, guilt being chiefly among them, uh, that I don't want other mothers to have to do it. But in, in, ter- in terms of this text, how does it uphold or subvert the Captain Mom archetype? And is there a better way of phrasing the Captain Mom archetype?
1: Yeah, poor Maisie. Um, yeah, she, she, that's definitely that whole scene with Lynette and her, the whole, you know, kind of beat that cycles throughout that episode is my favorite. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to come on and talk about this particular episode among many. Um, yeah, you cannot look at this episode and not think about mom archetypes. And you were talking about the text that sprung to your mind. I thought of bad moms and that's franchise, yes! right? And, and also... Someone sent me a book called Class Mom because I am a PTA mom, and it had the same thing. It had these moms disrupting the notion of what we think ideal moms should do. And always, as they're doing this, it's great, right? There's moms who are forging these new ways to parent. They're shaking up their system. They're dropping this perfect mom persona. But then there's always that foil and that foil is that captain mom i think that is the macy gibbons of them all and i think it's good that they're showing that you can be a great mom and you can do these things and you can have a positive impact without necessarily having that that persona of the captain mom and they're definitely rejecting i think in desperate housewives some of those practices that you might see associated with that kind of persona. Like, um, let's get rid of parenting shaming. Let's get rid of the guilt that comes with how we parent. Um, But your point is right. Um, There is some unfair portrayal for her to some extent because the episode is a lot more sympathetic to, let's say, Lynette or Jordan, Mm -hmm. who also go to extremes in the name of parent volunteering. So as I was thinking of this, I was thinking that there are these media products that tell us that there are these fixed parenting types When really, and I think that you've been saying this as well, there, we never exist in just one, right? We dip our toes and we Mm -hmm. blend in this fluid way from, from many of them. So I have certainly been a flaky Susan as a mom, a frazzled Lynette. I've been an OCD Brie. Um, And as much as I wanted to cringe a little bit while watching the episode, i'm sure i've been captain mom macy before um i'm on my second year as a pta president and my fifth year as a classroom volunteer so i have been up to my neck in children's activities right for school for dance um running their social lives and i'm sure i'm embarrassed to admit it that i've had a moment where i thought like her in in my head i've never shamed another mother but i'm sure there's a moment where i thought why isn't someone else pulling the rope or doing the heavy sure. thing, if we use her lines from the episode, um, just probably out of desperation to want to spread out my own work?
0: Absolutely. And I think another piece of that that gets complicated for me, and I don't believe I have this in my notes, but it just it came to me, and this is what I hope would happen, is that as we talk, we think about something else, uh, the the archetype or the... Um, the trope of the harried mom—that okay. is, you know—I just don't know how she accomplishes it all. I don't know how she does it all, and that that can be really damaging. Okay. Um, to to weigh oneself against, even if nobody's shaming me for not to, for not remembering that i needed four types of cupcakes instead of three even if nobody's shaming me the the amount that i put on myself shame i put on myself because i see somebody else doing it well or doing it what i would say perfectly which is not it couldn't possibly be because i see this person for 20 minutes every other month at a pta meeting so i can't possibly know but what what does the text if anything say about the comparisons that we make and how do you, and, and are they dangerous?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that actually in some ways the show is ahead of its time or predicting what we're experiencing now with social media especially. So mm. as I was watching this I was thinking a lot of this comparison culture that we have um, that we can post all the great things that we do as parents, right? You know, here is this wonderful cake that I baked, and it now looks like a fairy princess. It is the best cake I've ever made, and I put it on Facebook. I've only done that once in my 10 years of parenting, right? But I <laughs> do these things that, that make it look like our lives are a little bit more tidy than they are. And, of course, we know that that is a problem with um, social media, So, I I think that in general, when we see all of this perfection put up there, when we're curating our lives in a certain way, it does damage to our psyche. So, when we see that the other parents are creating organic bento boxes for lunch (laughs) or cutting their sandwiches with cookie cutter shapes and smiley faces you know you're like why don't I have the time to do this or doing every art project for every themed holiday I think it weighs on you but it's not a realistic standard or benchmark you're comparing yourself to right and so I think then it it makes us feel more frazzled because we're racing against um you know something we're not going to hit right a a, a finish line we're not going to hit a version of ourselves we can't be because what we're looking at is fantasy or exaggeration or you know know at least editing
0: um, online I really I really tapped into that idea of the Instagram mom or the the like oh you know things are going perfectly look at all the cupcakes I remember my daughter's fourth birthday the most liked Post that I had in the, in the year of my daughter's fourth birthday was, um, the ruined cupcakes. I had gotten cupcakes for my daughter's birthday and I left them on the, on the counter wow. and, and she, oh, do you, that, that, that means something to me. I'm sorry to say, um, she grabbed the box and she like shook the box and the cupcakes were very fragile and I opened it and I just started crying. Um, and so I, po- but I posted it, mm-hmm. I posted it, I don't think I posted it to say, you know what, shit happens to me too. Mm-hmm. I think I was looking for sympathy and yeah. I was looking for, I was looking for validation. Um, and and the way I knew that that is totally true about me is that Judge Rosemary Aquilina. Uh, commented under my post and said it gave me a, an explanation uh to give to my daughter that would make it all better oh and i felt better and that was deeply va- uh, validating but at the same time it it told me something about myself that that I you know, I I wasn't looking, I wasn't looking for, but it was good to examine and it was good to confront. Um, but yeah, sometimes you know, your fourth birthday is just shitty cup, is just <laughs> shitty looking cupcakes that tasted exactly the same. Of
1: course, right? <laughs> they were going to look that way in three seconds. No, I, I thought a lot about what we do um, in terms of being parents online. And, you know, I, I have tried at times to be actively aware to break that perfection persona. I remember early on in parenting, I was posting these, you know, jokes like parental fail number 378, you know, <laughs> let the baby's bottle at the bar. don't know if it was the wine bar or the sports bar. And I'm joking. Of course, it was all very safe, but I was, you know, doing things with colleagues. But I mean, I was trying to just break down this perfection idea. But if we were going to systematically analyze my post and see how many make me look like a floppy failure that I feel like sometimes versus how much makes me look like this crazy super mom, there's going to be so much that sides on that unrealistic spectrum. So it's it's just not representative of the spectrum of who I am as a mother. And so besides forgiving my children a really heavy digital footprint that they haven't asked for yet, I'm in wanting to share in um, loving to just document my life and, and to, to tell people what I'm up to. I also know I'm part of this cycle, and it's very hard to break. Um, I, I
0: don't know if we know we're doing it while we're doing it. We're I, I'm okay with a with any rabbit hole because it 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 speaks to it. But you you also mentioned the digital footprint, and I think that that's valid um, and ahead of its time. You're right. This wasn't something that they covered, but it certainly would be something we cover in Desperate Housewives if Desperate Housewives took uh, right. took place in 2021, mm-hmm. because I think to myself is my daughter going to get canceled because of something I posted right. um, that, well, it's very clear why you have anemia when you're 40 years old. Uh, your mother failed at breastfeeding. <laughs> I mean, just absolutely ridiculous things that have nothing to do with, uh, with her life when she's 40. Um, but I wonder what damage I will do based on based on that. Or, you know, what great things I will do. So we can, I guess we can frame it in two ways. But I really, I really appreciated that. Yes, if if this were existing, if this text were taking place in 2021, that would definitely be something that they would be talking about right now.
1: Well, and I think we see that, right? Like how they perform in different scenes is because that's how they want to be portrayed. So, you know, Lynette does at first, you know, uh, agree to do the costumes as a power grab, but also, you know, there's this moment where everyone then claps for her, right? So you you do these actions to benefit your kids in certain environments. And I've definitely seen myself uh, editing myself or changing my persona slightly to benefit my own children. Um, There was a time where I was changing who could see my Facebook posts, perhaps. Yeah, so you know, people in different groups associated with my daughter might not see certain posts. So I, it's really crazy. And I desperate housewives doesn't get there because it's pre that era. But definitely, I can see how that would play out
0: nowadays on the show. So we talk about, and we've talked, to, we've touched on it already, but uh, parental competitiveness. So I don't want to, I, I don't want to pigeonhole it to mommy competitiveness or mommy, you know. But I did Captain Mom, but that that parental competitiveness is a topic that weaves its way into this episode, and it really reminds me of Queen Bee Moms and Kingpin Dads by Rosalind Wiseman, who also wrote Queen Bees and uh, Wannabes, which resulted in Tina Fey writing Mean Girls. Um, just that, that ancestry, that genealogy. So what are your thoughts on the rules of competition and creating desperation for Lynette and other parents? We kind of touched on it, but is there is there somewhere else that we should talk about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that most telling moment is, is when, you know, Lynette is questioning, right? So Maisie Gibbons stands up and says... We're gonna change the ending to this story so that the big bed wolf doesn't get killed because we are against euthanizing animals in any situation possible. And Lynette laughs, right? And then doesn't realize this isn't isn't a joke. And she's just trying to argue for keeping the classic the same and we get this kind of mean turn, right? Where it mm-hmm. goes, Oh, who are you? Oh, Lynette. You're the one who just is taking the tickets at the sale. So let some of us do the creative, you know, decision making who are doing the heavy lifting. And so that heavy lifting really kind of haunted me as I was seeing this kind of hierarchy of, you know, Mm -hmm. who does the right volunteering, who does the most volunteering, you know, who shows up. And so I definitely saw it as a Power struggle. So again, when Lynette says, Hey, I'll do costumes, she does it really so she can stand up and say, Hey, now that I'm doing some heavy lifting, let's talk about lifting. Can we talk about this ending and has everyone vote in her favor to kill the dang wolf, right? So (laughs) I I do think that there's competitiveness. But for her character, I don't think she would have come in wanting to be the boss of the room. I don't think she would have wanted to be seen as the best mom. I feel like for her, we see her do these things as to gain some more control back because she was losing control in this parental um you know setting and so sometimes i think this competition is not necessarily um just about prestige but it can be about power and control
0: i definitely feel better when i'm in control so i've Mm -hmm. i've dealt i've dealt with that as well so i i understand where lynette is but the other part is I don't want the sins of the mother taken out on my child. So later on, when we get into a place, when we get into a place where Maisie will basically threaten to cut the oak trees, um, mm-hmm. if 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 Lynette doesn't make the costumes look exactly the way Maisie wants them, I I have to say the level of desperation I would go to, to make sure that my daughter's part doesn't get caught because of me. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would do to make sure that, that happens would probably reveal things about me that I'm not not happy with or not I, I, they would not. I would not be living my best life in the moments that those are revealed.
1: No, I, I, I definitely agree. I think that we would compromise some of the things we won't want to say we compromise in order for our kids to get what we want our kids to have. Yeah. Um, the other line that I, that kind of dealt with this competitiveness was when um, Lynette is talking about the alpha mom. Right. She's mm. saying, you know, she finally explodes at the end of that kind of storyline arc. And she's like, let's take this outside. You know, this is just ridiculous. Do we we want to deal with this alpha mom crap until our kids graduate? And so I loved at least addressing that. that sure. There are, are these mom power struggles and these moms who want to take up so much space or take control. And I, I liked her trying to disrupt that and not make it cyclical because I could see how that does plague some Probably moms and dads for the rest of their parenting because they, they get stuck against these big personalities and, and don't know how to intervene. And
0: in terms of conflict management and what we model for our children in terms of conflict management, that we there will be things that will be addressed that we can fix and things that we can't fix, but we definitely have to address them regardless of whether or not they're, whether or not we're going to have a resolution that everybody's happy with or no one is happy with. But it's never better to just ignore that there is obviously a problem here mm-hmm. in terms of how we're communicating with one another. So I, I agree. I, I'm glad that, regardless of how it was executed that we have that we at least have the discussion and then we can refine from there. you know that wasn't the best way that we could have handled that but at least now we're having the discussion Um, I want to pivot a little bit to, um, in your book, How Pop Culture Shapes the Stages of a Woman's Life, you refer to, uh, Desperate Housewives, among others, as maybe an example of post-feminism, and -hmm. that the war is over, and we're all completely liberated in 2004. Uh, so when Lynette says something like, I prefer working with men, I prefer the way men fight, I don't know that I saw it as problematic in 2004. I think I probably rolled my eyes like, oh, my goodness, you know, that that it wasn't worth my time to dissect the the sexism that was there. Um, But one of the reasons that we wanted to reexamine this text after 2016 and just in in a more contemporary, through a more contemporary lens, um, were some of those. And I think like Susan Douglas might have called it enlightened feminism, enlightened sexism. where do we what are what are our thoughts on what this text has to say in that in that vein
1: yeah the post-feminist moment um it gets really complicated you know i i remember you were writing something called being about being a fake feminist at one point yes feeling yep, like a and, fraud yes no and i have felt that way too and i'm a feminist media scholar i mean uh, Roxanne gay calls it you know bad feminism so this idea that there's this kind of you know perfect or this thing that is feminism that is, you know, just this entity. Um, The post-feminist movement, you know, complicates that, I think, but also it it shows us that certain things aren't in opposition of one or another, right? There isn't feminist and feminine, right? So it starts to kind of, you know, complicate that not everyone has to want a certain thing. So as we were really trying to get to the moment of, feminism working, you know, there were all these ideas that, you know, women should want this certain thing. Maybe they should all want to be working professionals or or they should want to not be seen as sex objects, right? Whatever you want to imagine were kind of the ideas floating around that people might associate with, you know, feminist thought, wherever, in the, the second wave or whatnot. What we see in the show that could be post feminist is that we definitely see that these characters taking on roles that say, no, that's not what makes me happy. And this post-feminist mindset is you do you in a certain yeah. way, right? So right. if refines finds her fulfillment in being what we might think is more retro, you know, the, you know, the kind of classic housewife, then the show is endorsing that, right, that path. Um, Gabrielle is, is more of the kind of the, the classic, you know, a female icon, you know, you know more in touch with her sexuality, you know, focus on appearance, uh, material items to some degree. Again, the show really isn't critical of that either. So we get all these different ways to be a woman, and the show isn't telling you that one is feminist or not feminist in some way. Uh, We definitely aren't seeing this kind of, you know, post-feminism backlash that we have seen in other texts that we could talk about. Um, As far as Lynette's comment about how men and women fight differently, it, it obviously is a stereotype. And so it's reinforcing, you know, assumptions about men and women but i paused too because i do think that even 15 you know 20 years later we're still socialized into those roles we're socialized so that men are more comfortable um, with direct combat and conflict whereas women are more likely to bite their tongue or be told they should that they should problem solve in a different way that their strategies for interpersonal communication are often different and they've had studies that that track this so I I think there's truth to it but not because of any innateness right not because we come out of the you know womb with genetic matter that makes us do these things but rather it's things like our pop culture like this that Mm -hmm. help reinforce that women should problem solve one way and men should problem solve a different way.
0: And I wonder how much of that is, back to the chicken and egg debate, I suppose, but how much of this text was written by men, how much of it was directed by men and wanted to see it in a certain way, and is there a part of the, the male gaze that figured into this that men think it's hot when we fight, that there's something... It, that that there's also something power and structurally about having women fighting one another so that maybe we're distracted and we're not going to fight the hierarchy and we're not going to fight we're not going to fight other things that might benefit uh, that might benefit us to unify regardless of uh, of differences that we may have we benefit from bringing down structures that will keep women out
1: yeah i think douglas has this comment about how you know, she never wants to imagine there's this, this cabal of a few white angry men in the background, you know, with a strategy to do these things that turn out bad for us um, on the screen. So I think, if nothing else, what often we get is sloppy storytelling, where we tell the tale we've heard before. We use the character type we've used before, Um, and some of that makes it easier for writers, but some of that makes it easier for us consumers, right? We are very comfortable with predictable text, predictable narratives, predictable characters. And so some of this, I don't think, obviously, is intentional. Um, I think it's it's cyclical, and it's, it's historical, and it's baggage we haven't dropped. But I do think if we were to be watching this particular show against a show made within the last five years, we would see some differences.
0: Well, I'm really glad you said that because one of the ways in which we try to bring this text into conversations with others is that we examined season one of The Handmaid's Tale, mm-hmm. a text from 2017, obviously has precursors uh, to Margaret Atwood, but something that is produced and written and directed in 2017 really flipped the script and that it was more of an 80-20 with uh, 80% of the writers being female and 80% of the directors being female is also 10 episodes as opposed to 24. So we look at the ways in which storytelling has changed in in that amount of time. But uh, I'll be, that was, that was a way that we tried to make that comparison is At the same time apples and oranges totally Mm -hmm. different genres um but we but one of the the ways in which we talked about it was i have sometimes been embarrassed to admit that desperate housewives is one of my favorite shows it's one of the shows that i couldn't miss on sunday nights Mm. um it was but we we call it the 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 island of misfit toys where i couldn't stream it yet so if you missed an episode you Mm -hmm. had to just watch the next episode and hope you'd be okay and you maybe get a rerun in six months because it was also after traditional vcr taping Mm
1: -hmm. of something
0: so we we talked about the way in which we re that we re-examine that text now is that it it didn't it doesn't empower me all the time to be watching desperate housewives doesn't make me comfortable all the time to be watching desperate housewives Whereas when I'm watching Handmaid's Tale, sometimes I'm just depressed, Um, Mm -hmm. but it feels cathartic. It feels like I'm growing. It feels like I'm moving somewhere and Desperate Housewives did not feel that way.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: What are the way, what, one of the ways that I've approached that is that it's just a, just a different change in time, but also um, eating my vegetables that we, I think we talked about that in, in, in our relationship Uh, earlier is that everything bad is good for you Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, that there actually is value to video games there is value uh to some of these texts that can be problematic um is there anything you wanted to comment on there
1: yeah and i think it's important to revisit texts and see them differently so i'll tell you the one that that i had kind of a oh i don't know yeah yeah soul searching moment uh i watched the vampire diaries i'm not sure if you ever watched that cw show but it's, you know, very teen angsty, and I watched it religiously when I was probably way too old to watch it, you know, but I had read the books as a, as a junior high student, and I remember loving the books, and it was one of the rare adaptations, like The Handmaid's Tale, I think, where <clears throat> the adaptation is better than, than the original. I know, please, Margaret Atwood, don't hear this and, and, and come down on me, but... <laughs> The world building is so cool. The expansiveness that um, a never ending or a long serial can do. I've always liked as a TV scholar, right? So it's just different. Um, But anyways, I rewatched the Vampire Diaries and the love triangles and the misogyny Mm. and the, the kind of abusive relationships that are on display there. Oh, my goodness, right? Like i I don't think I'd want my children watching that show today. and I wonder what it says to me that I was a feminist media scholar. And I could be in love with the characters and the relationships that I was. And even mm. as I was watching it, I could still feel a little that, right? Like, I mean, that, that love of the characters that were really problematic and those relationships that were toxic mm. um, was still deep in my soul, even if my intellectual mind could be there going, oh, uh-uh. And so what I did is I, I did an, a study on it, and I looked at tweets of people watching it. And I was fascinated by the people who were rewatching it like me and what mm. they were saying. The show had an impact on the way they approach relationships or mm. the way they're looking back at it now and disliking and in different ways. So I, I think this is just um, very interesting that, yeah, we are always going to go back to text at different stages of our lives and see different
0: things. And and, and that's OK. And almost almost approaching it that this was a guilty pleasure. I am embarrassed at, at some ple- in in some pieces that are so problematic. but I feel I feel that you are also correct about. I watched this at a developmental time and what that might have meant for relationships, toxicity, uh, that I was either willing to accept or willi- or uh, felt empowered to reject. And I think both played in there. I think we've talked about that oh, um, also with Fifty Shades of Grey, with Twilight, um, some very problematic, um, very problematic texts that have been well received by women. Mm hmm. That didn't mean that they didn't have any value, but it did take some... Soul. You're right, soul-searching was the best way to put that, I think, is some soul-searching.
1: Well, and I think you're right about seeing the nutrition that's within there, too. I mean, mm. this was a show with a huge female cast. It was mostly female actresses at the center stage that were showing us different ways of, of being a woman. They were showing women not having it all together. And so, yes, of course, you know, by nature of the, the genre, it was, it does some of these things and it, it, you know, it misses the mark for us as, you know, viewers at 2021. But for its time, it was doing some good on the air. And I, I don't, I don't think we want to ignore that too. We can look back at Sex and the City and find a couple moments that make us, you know, cringe too. But for its time, it was earth shattering. And so I think we do have to
0: keep context in mind. I agree um the next one we wanted to talk about was fear and i think that Mm -hmm. desperate housewives really does talk a lot about fear and the the multiple fears of different housewives um susan worries that she's not enough to attract another partner um lynette and rodana are both afraid that they won't be enough and so they resort to taking drugs to get the costumes done and the sets painted so in what text is in what ways does this text speak to enoughness
1: yeah, when you had mentioned post feminism earlier, it made me think of that classic question about whether women can have it all. Mm. Right. And so in the eighties when there was this major shift and, and women were heading out into the field and, and there were more dual families with, you know, both people working, you know, we, we saw a lot of people struggling and there was a lot of claims that women can't have it all. You can't have that professional goal and, you know, be the perfect wife and mother. And I see this show as kind of being an echo of that or playing with that debate, you know, you know, 20 years in the making. So in a good way, it's better than what we see in the 80s. So I think I had mentioned this a minute ago, um, right when that was happening, there was a bunch of backlash, feminist backlash shows. that mm-hmm. you wouldn't even think all of that. But when you look at the trend, you're like, oh, that is kind of enlightening. So right when women were infiltrating the workforce on our screens at home, we had all of these male-dominated kind of dad narratives. So Mm. my two dads, uh, who's the boss, right? All of these Mr. Mom types are suddenly on our screens like, hey, women, you wanted that? Look who's doing really good in your place. And so even though they weren't overtly shaming moms, they were erasing moms from the picture, which I think can be seen Mm. as a backlash. And so when I look at 2004 and I see what's happening there, I do still see the, you know, the frazzled mom or whatnot. Trying to see how, how can we do it all? How can we hit these bars and, and whatnot? Um, so I, I think that that's kind of the same thing as we saw before with that competitiveness and that um, comparing ourselves to other people, that it's fear that we're just not hitting that, that imaginary benchmark that doesn't really exist.
0: So I'm reminded of a piece in both Tina Fey's memoir and Cheryl Sand- Sandberg's memoir um, that the most offensive question you can ask a woman is not how much do you weigh, uh, it's how you know how are you managing it all? How do you do mm-hmm. it all? Um, and Tina Fey said, and under the under the surface, what I hear when I when I hear that when I hear that, what I think they're saying is, what are you fucking up? What is mm-hmm. it that you're not doing right? because the, you mu- there must be something. Um, and Cheryl Sandberg answering the question with, I don't, I don't do it all, and I don't get it all right, and that this is the mess. When I look at something like a, a, a potentially problematic relationship, but I love watching it, I think about Susan and Julie.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that. their level of openness and when I watched, I've, I've said that this is a way that I view this differently at different, at different pieces, at, at different stages of my life. When I was 14 and I watched that, I thought it was fantastic. What does this text say about that? Does it, in, does it endorse? Does it sub, I guess, does it adhere? Does it subvert? Well, as far as the
1: how, how can you do it all? And isn't there, there's a book and a movie, like, I don't know how she does it, right? Yes. You know, that, that That's just, it's been there forever. I think, it, I think. Two things um, happen. I think I think that's interesting. I had not really heard those quotes about people saying there's an assumption that you must be dropping balls because I can definitely see that. But I also have heard that said in a way that that is showing the other person's like they're, they're feeling like, oh, my God, why can't I do what I'm mm-hmm. seeing that you do? So sometimes I don't see it as malicious, but as, you know, like self-doubt or, or self-deprecation when, when that comment comes out. So I think it could be a little bit of both and like you trying to, to respond in positive ways um, you know I, I've often just joked I'm like well <laughs> not well or I don't sleep or don't model after me I've had I've had new students like you that are like come me <laughs> tell me dr. Ames how do you how do you do this and what are your personal mental health best strategy and I'm like uh-huh. don't don't listen to me like because I haven't figured it out yet and so I, I I like to tell people that I don't think I'm doing it well and that no you shouldn't stay up to 4 a.m to do the point shoes and write your article and grade papers. <laughs> like that's not healthy so I do a lot of things that will catch up with me um, I love the, the, the relationships on the show with the, the kids and the Julie-Susan one has always struck me, too. And now that I'm a mom, I was, I was watching that. And there's not as many moments between them in this particular episode. Mm. But I love, you know, when Susan's trying to get Julie to, you know, go into the rehab center, and here's another non-PC moment, right? Julie's like, well, how do I get around? And and, and Susan's like, well, just try to be bulimic or something. Pretend to be bulimic. Just gather Oh, them. gosh. Like, oh, so not PC. But I love, you know, that after this scene is over, you know, Julie goes, Mom, when this is all done, let's talk about your parenting skills. And it's a joke, but also, you know, it speaks to this moment that we know we're we're, we're going to miss the mark. We're going to mess up. And it's fun that they have this relationship that makes it not seem like this ultimate horrible parental failure, that they can have this communication about
0: missteps and whatnot. I I agree. There's... What is it? It, it? it sounds bad to say this, but when you slow down, when you see a car accident... Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's what I see sometimes when it's like, I want to, why am I looking? Why, why, why am I looking? I'm sure I'm only going to see carnage, but with Julian and Susan, I don't feel that I'm looking for carnage. It is mm-hmm. enjoyable. It is, you're right. There's some, there's some nutrition there. And I wrote that down as you were saying it. Yeah. And
1: I think it's a different parental ideal. Cause I think it's interesting. You said you would have wanted that at one point, And now mm-hmm. that you're a mother, you don't know if you really want that. So, and this idea of how much we want to share I don't know if I've ever ever told you this, but I write my daughter's monthly emails. I do, and and I love it. I tell them so much about what they're doing, and sometimes it's just informational about what's going on in the world, and I try to tell them a little bit about me bit by bit and give them advice because I'm morbid and think I'm going to die before they're 16 all the time, (laughs) (laughs) you know, random car accident, Um, but I... I try to get brave and put things in these emails that maybe I wouldn't want to say when they're teenagers, but right now they seem far off from it that I would want to share this story about, you know, love and and sex or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. The first time you get drunk and you shouldn't have. Um, And then I'm like, but once they're out there, you know, and I put that out there, I can't grab that email back. So it's this constant um, weighing of, you know... What do you share with your your kids, and 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 will you feel the same way
0: about how much you want to share at different points of their lives? It's oh, fascinating. Um, is there a question that you wish I had asked you?
1: Well, I guess you know we we got to talk so much about um, you know Lynette, right? And and the reason why I loved this episode was the fact I don't know if we even said it today uh, online on, on on the air together but the fact that she's driven to take her kids ADHD medicine, right? Like that's the one right. that when you said, you know, if you wanted to talk about any, any episode, that was the was ingrained in my mind that it could get to that point that, you know, moms are telling other moms like, Hey, you know how to get it all done. Pop some of these, you know, p- you know, pills. And the fact that then she does this and, and whatnot. And we see the aftermath in the next couple um, episodes as well. So that's really what struck out. But I was interested in watching these other videos. Beats of the show, you know, just this the, the the marital conflict with with Bree and Rex to look back at that again, and the idea of you know both of them struggling with what they want from each other in terms of uh, relationships and, and and sex, and um, this uh, what was the other one? and then uh, Gabrielle and this you know kind of constant you know tug of war with power struggles in her own marriage and with her in law. So I just thought there were so many interesting moments. To this show that are they're so different and I, I forgot how it unfolded and i just liked it so that's not a question but it, it was fun to you watch all of this stuff
0: when you talked about gabrielle something that we keep getting drawn into in our conversations um, my co-host and i are is the transactional nature mm. of her relationships. It feels very transactional. And I think the in this episode particularly, the idea that her maid is going to get taken away from her because her mother-in-law has yeah. done the calculation of how much it costs. And I guess to to, you know, Carlos, oh. that transaction is worth it if it means that the level, of consistency, satisfaction level of his sex is going to stay where it is. When Gabrielle um posits that it's possible I will not have the same level of sexual stamina if I have to do all my own cleaning and shopping and cooking but you know after a couple years I'm sure I'll get used to it
1: I love that I wrote down sex as strategy when I was watching it too like god I'm gonna miss this it'll be years before I can build my sexual stamina back up and I was just cracking up right because I mean this you know this is again this is not Sex can be a strategy, right? When the women women sure. actually have learned this long ago, and we've seen it play out in media too. So again, I it was another tool from her toolbox, and so yeah. But I, I like that transactional. So very very strategic, and and I I felt like she won that battle. If we are going to call this you know an episode full of battles, you know right away, right after the opening credits, which was kind of funny.
0: The maid stays. The maid stays. We need we need no more. We need mm-hmm. no more than that. Mm-hmm. All right, Dr. Ames, before we let you go, where can people find more of your work? What can we promote for you? What are you working on? What do you want to tell us about? Um, So if you want
1: to kind of look back on some of the themes that I've written about that are present in what we talked about today, um, they can Google Small Screen Scholar. And that's a blog that I kept up for a few years that would have, you know, kind of informal essays written about shows like Desperate Housewives. Scandal, Grey's Anatomy, so if, if you like women's TV and you just kind of want to see the themes I've written on, though, it's just an easy way to kind of skim through and see if one of your favorite shows is talked about, and it's not all about women. I, I write about post 9-11 TV and shows I've just loved like Lost, so it's kind of all over the place. Um, right now, I've switched gears a little bit, and I'm more of a social media scholar, and so I have an edited collection with Christy McDuffie coming out um, sometime next year. that's on hashtag activism. So people can kind of look out for that. But, you know, if you Google me and put Eastern Illinois University, um, you'll take you to my bio and some places you can click on to get to some books and articles that I've read. So people can always uh, reach out, email if they want to ask me something. I'm, I'm happy to just chit chat with people who love pop culture.
0: Fantastic. And we'll put that in our show notes so that people can easily access that. And as always, it is a pleasure to see, I get to see her, but you don't get to see her. Um, It's a pleasure to see you and to talk about these, uh, these topics with you, Dr. Ames. So thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.